Welcome to Blitzscaling a Startup. I'm Julian Newman. And I'm Chris Ye. And Chris Ye, were you on, were, did you gallivant to some uh, fancy place this week or were you uh, in Silicon Valley the whole week? No, I was actually you know on the ground this whole week. Now I am going to maybe towards the end of the Super Bowl head on up to Napa Valley for a conference for the start of next week. And then next Sunday, I will be heading to Dubai. So that will start the gallivanting again. And there will be more gallivanting after that. So it's going to be Dubai and then Las Vegas. Abu Dhabi. And then, yes, Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Catherine, Catherine told me you guys are going to get together. We're going to try. It's going to, it's going to be a little tricky because in order for us to get together, I would need to land at Dubai and get through customs and take a car up to uh, Abu Dhabi and then meet her, you know, hopefully in time before she uh, before she needed to turn in because she's leaving super early the next morning for mm. uh, for a vacation. So we'll have to see. We've left it as, hey, let's see what happens because who knows if my flight will be delayed or, or what have you. So. I need to talk about it also with my partner, Jeremiah, my business partner, who's going to be with me and see how much tolerance he has for gallivanting as well. But right. it's possible. It's just a shame that the timing didn't work out to make it a little easier. But she happens to be leaving the 7 a.m. the morning I intended to get to Abu Dhabi. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So, yeah. Chris, yes. hiring as a CEO for me right now. Right. Or, you know, and, and, and in all the businesses that I've run, uh, they never got to a big enough scale where, uh, you know, I wasn't do, like at least very, it wasn't it was like me or my co-founder doing hiring, like leading the hiring. Mm -hmm. um, and even when my co-founder would do the hiring, I would be personally involved. Actually, you would be involved. Um, we'd get you know, investors and stuff like that to help. Um, so, and, and I want to talk through that process, um, and, and I want to talk through like, you know, essentially how that evolves over time as like the business like gets bigger and how to think of when you should be more hands-off, et cetera. But I, I think that a, a really useful starting point is like, why is it that the CEO should do all the hiring uh, 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 as much as possible? Because mm -hmm. intuitively, you could make an argument that you should let your, the, 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 your reports, uh, your direct reports, let's say the director of marketing should hire the marketing people so that they feel they have ownership. But that's not actually how you should do it. So it's like, like, why is it that the CEO should be as involved as possible in hiring well, let's split it up into a couple of different stages of the company and of course to reinforce branding i will mention the stages of blitzscaling which involve the family stage which is less than 10 people in the organization then the tribe stage which is 10 to 99 and then the city village stage which is 100 to 999 city which is a thousand plus nation which is ten thousand plus so 
keep that in the back of your mind as we're referring to it. I know you know them very well, Julian, but just in case the audience members didn't, I thought it was worth mentioning. And so if they begin... forget, they can reference their copy of Blitzscaling, which I'm sure they all have. Correct. So let's start at the family stage. So just a very pragmatic thing is at the family stage, you don't have a lot of people in your organization. And in some cases, it might just be you and a couple of others. So as the CEO, yeah, you have to lead hiring because there's nobody else to do it. But there are reasons why it is good for the CEO to lead hiring. The first is the earlier you are in the history of the company, the more the person is simply betting on you, the CEO. There might be no funding. There might be no product. There might be no customers. What the hell else are they going to do to judge whether or not they should do this? It's going to be based on their relationship with you, the founder CEO. So pragmatically, there's no alternative, right? Imagine a three-person company where the CEO says, no, I'm not going to be involved in hiring, right? That's ludicrous. But there are also other reasons. So let's explore going further along the path. Let's say we now get to the tribe stage. And in fact, in the tribe stage, we're not even at 10 employees. We're like 50 or so. Well, when you get to that size, the organization is large enough to have at least one or two layers of hierarchy. Right. You have people who directly report to you and then people who report to them. There may be even people who report to them in some cases. And so now you're no longer in a case where you're going to be working with the person on a day to day basis. You might only vaguely know the person. Well, in that case. The person who is going to be working with them all the time should be the one who is leading the hiring process because they're the ones who are gonna to have to live with the consequences of that hiring decision on a daily basis. So they should have a lot of ownership over that. But you as the CEO still need to be involved because it's still the case that the company is young, that resources are limited, and that part of what they're doing is they're still placing a bet on you. The employees are investors too. They're investing their time because they cannot, well, not easily, work multiple jobs at the same time and spread out their diversification. They've got to choose one. And for them to choose your company requires them to believe in you as the founder CEO. So I would say that once you get to midway through the tribe stage, the CEO shouldn't be leading the process, but the CEO still needs to be involved for the reasons I described. And by the way, this is entirely appropriate. The most important things you can do in your organization is to get the right people in. They are the, in most cases, the most important resource you have. And so it's appropriate for the CEO to make sure that they're involved to get the best possible people. Caveats apply here. If as a CEO, you're terrible at hiring, if people meet you and they're turned off or scared, well, first of all, you might want to reconsider your choice of profession. But second, yeah, there are reasons why maybe you shouldn't be or involved. There's always the ability to flex up and down in terms of level of involvement. But then finally, there comes a time when the organization has gotten very large. And the question is, is there ever a time where the CEO is no longer involved? And the answer is, yeah, there is. Because again, we start to run into the actual limitations just based on logistics. So imagine that you have a company that is hiring hundreds of people a year. Let's say you're hiring, you know, at least one person a day, 250 working days in the year, you're hiring at least one person a day, maybe two people. Let's say you're hiring 500 people a year. 
in order to hire those 500 people, each of those candidates will need to interview many times, four, six, eight times. And then, of course, you're going to interview many candidates before you pick one. So each person that you hire is going to represent, you know, many, many interviews. The CEO probably only interviewed the person once. But let's say the CEO is interviewing those candidates. Well, that's a lot, right? That is doing, on average, 20 interviews a day. Well, that's not going to work. It just can't. And so the CEO can't be involved. Now, the CEO should still be involved as much as possible. And one of the things from the book Blitzscaling that was interesting is that Reed and I found when we talked with people who were very successful, people like Eric Schmidt and Brian Chesky and Anil Busri, Eric Schmidt, of course, the CEO of Google for a long time, Brian Chesky, the founder and CEO of Airbnb, Anil Busri, the founder and co-CEO of Workday, now the CEO of Workday. The strange thing happened that the same number kept coming up. The founder CEO said that they would be involved in the hiring decision for the first 500 employees. And it's kind of weird that there is this one number that came up multiple times independently from people in completely different businesses. And my speculation is given the pace of hiring, that's probably the point at which it becomes impossible to continue to have the CEO deeply involved. Now, there's two other layers of or levels of involvement that will still occur from there. And then a third level once those two levels are exceeded. The next level of involvement is, well, you know, this person, is, the CEO is not going to be involved in all the hiring. But once you have got someone that everyone else wants to bring on board, maybe the CEO comes in for the final interview. And that makes it so it's just maybe one interview a day, which is still a lot to invest in. But you might still do that for a longer, right? When you get to 200, 300 employees and you're doing, you know, an interview, you're bringing in a new employee at least every week. Well, are you willing to spend one hour a week or half an hour a week interviewing in order to make sure that you convey the importance of the role and make sure you take the measure of someone? Yes. And then going beyond that, you get to the point where maybe you just talk to the candidates after they've been hired. I don't think that's as ideal, but you, know, you might be forced to do that. And then finally, when you're at a massive, massive scale, what you might end up doing, and, and a number of companies do this, is where all the new employees for a given week get together or a given month get together and they get a chance to meet the CEO. I actually uh, encountered this in one organization, not even that large one organization, but they had a meeting every week with the CEO for the new employees. And I got a chance to participate in this. This is a, a, a whole convoluted story why, but suffice to say, I got a chance to participate. And there were only like two people in the, the meeting, but I assume there were other weeks when it might be four or five. And, and it seemed like it was, a, again, an effective way for the CEO to say, okay, I've not been involved in hiring this person, but I'm going to get to know them at least a little bit. And we'll have the basis for some relationship so that they can come in the future if necessary. So that's kind of a high-level overview of how that hiring evolves over time. And just to summarize the reasons why you're doing it, you are evaluating the person, but more importantly, you're letting them evaluate you. The employees are making an investment decision to join your company, and you are a key part of that investment decision. And if they're not able to see you, well, guess what? People who are really good are not going to join the company if they don't get a chance to talk with a CEO. Or if 
the CEO doesn't want to talk to them before they're hired, they're going to raise questions in their minds. Why is this the case? So it's a necessity to be involved. But once you get to a certain size, I think people do understand, hey, you know what? If I'm joining Apple now, I understand that I can't have a personal interview with Tim Cook before I join. But that's okay. There's plenty of other information out there about Apple. I don't need to worry about Tim Cook's leadership to know whether or not Apple will survive. There's all this other information that I can use to make that decision. So where there is not that other information, where it is a bet on the founder CEO, that's why the CEO needs to be involved. Okay. There are three things I'd like you to touch on that mm -hmm. you, uh, I think you didn't touch on or kind of did, but it'd be really helpful. So one, uh, company culture. So I know uh, specifically that uh, Brian Chesky um, you know, talks about how that's a big factor and why he was yeah. involved for so long. So, so that uh, like, so that's the first one. Second one is anti-fragility. Like I kind of got a sense from you that there's like, if people have a personal relationship, the CEO, it, you know, has like, like when times are bad, they're less likely to leave stuff like that. So there's a sense of mm -hmm. anti-fragility, which I think is, uh, I, I'd never thought about it that way. I think it's really insightful. And then the third is, I, I think there's like, when you're talking about these meetings of like many employees and the CEO, there's this kind of like in the mind of the employee, there's this kind of like magic that the CEO you know, represents, and, and I've seen that with customers too. Yeah. And uh, I'm not sure what that is. Uh, I'm not sure how it functions, but if you could kind of, uh, you know, tell that story from the employee's perspective, um, yes. that'd be awesome. Absolutely. So we want to talk about the magic of the CEO. We want to talk about anti-fragility. And the first point was company culture, company culture. Okay, great. So let's talk about company culture. And that's an interesting one because there's some nuance here. Uh, clearly, Brian Chesky is talking about being involved in the early days at Airbnb and, uh, because culture was very critical to him. And this is something that I think is true for a lot of CEOs, not all of them, but a lot of them. And culture is important because culture is the way that you as the founder CEO exert influence even when you're not in the room. So, of course, it's great that you're some charismatic CEO and that people really get so much out of being around you, but you can't be around everyone all the time. And culture is what builds a set of norms around behavior. But the key is, like, you could just come up with a long list of suggestions and principles and guides, and that's great. But what makes culture culture is not that there's a bunch of things written on the wall or that there's a deck somewhere or a handbook somewhere. It's that the entire mesh network of employees is following it, reinforcing it, and making it easier for each other to follow that culture and adopt it. So therein lies the nuance and the tension. Early on, the CEO and founder play a huge role in building that culture. The culture is largely an outgrowth of the founders and how the founders are and exist is going to determine the culture far more than what you say on a wall, especially because people are interacting with the founders on a daily basis. So that's why the interaction, the presence of the CEO during interviewing is so important for the culture because the culture at that point is still largely the founders. And so if you want to convey the culture, if you want to begin the transmission even before they're hired, 
you have to have the CEO talk with them. So that's that. However, the whole point of culture is to make it so that the leadership is more scalable. So it doesn't just rely on the CEO personally touching everyone. And that's why over time, and Brian Chesky will even tell you about this, you find other ways to convey the culture. And Airbnb takes the approach, as a number of other companies do, of having a cultural interviewer, somebody who is assessing cultural fit, somebody who is not directly in the line of reporting so that they are not tempted to just wave the person through because they're just so desperate to get more bodies in because of how busy everything is, but rather something who somebody who can really in a dispassionate way say, okay, here's what we're all about. And I want to make sure you're all about the same things. So culture is really important, but again, there's a transition that's going to occur as the organization grows and the CEO should not be responsible for conveying the culture. They should still need to embody the culture. They still need to have the moral authority to change directions if necessary. Obviously, if we look at the example of somebody like Meta, where Mark Zuckerberg first dragged the entire company one direction on Metaverse and dragged the company in another direction on AI, very reminiscent to the way he dragged them in terms of mobile. Well, that's something that can only happen when you have a founder with that kind of moral authority and that kind of shareholder authority. Uh, but culture no, is still going to matter and at this point mark zuckerberg of course drives the culture of facebook but he does not interview all the new employees who come in yes yeah, so i think the what you're saying here in, in terms of the ceo's role around culture is it's really hard to find to like delegate the kind of culture ambassadorship to somebody else and that's why early on you do that as a ceo and hiring is a big part of how you do that. But ideally, you offload that as early as possible. So there's no kind of, it's not necessarily better to have the CEO be the culture ambassador at 100 employees. Um, it, it'd be better to have, you know, somebody else be the culture ambassador at five employees, if that was possible. Um, you know, which it might not be. That, that's that's the distinction. Exactly. It depends on the strength of the culture because, again, culture is not a cult of personality, right? We put the cult in culture. The culture is not a cult of personality. Culture is something that arises from a group. And, you know, fascinating example of this is the Unreasonable Group, an organization that I think I've spoken about before, which is a social impact accelerator I've been involved with for over a decade as a mentor. And the Unreasonable Group has a very charismatic and amazing founder, Daniel Epstein. But what's been fascinating to see is to see over time how Daniel has taken more and more of a backseat to the staff who are creating and running the programs. It would be very easy and tempting for a certain kind of person to say, well, I'm the founder, CEO, I'm the one who created all this, and I'm going to be on stage for all of our big events because it's fun and because I don't trust anyone else. But Daniel's sending a very powerful message by either just being a participant or sometimes not even being there. And the message is the organization is bigger than just me. And it gives people cultural responsibility. And the only way to get people to take cultural responsibility is for them to have that opportunity. Yeah, that's super interesting. That's not all how I was thinking about it before. and. Like, I think that's, that this is a really important distinction, just like the CEO as cultural ambassador is only the case 
it's a suboptimal structure. Correct. Just like a lot of things are suboptimal. Because of the but nature of culture itself. Yeah. But you would rather, like, you, you need to do it at first, but that's not a role that only the CEO can play. Therefore, it's a role you, as a CEO, should try to not play, you know, to the extent you, you can or when you can or when it makes sense. That's right. And essentially, another way of putting it in business model terms is that culture is most powerful ultimately when it's decentralized and democratic. And having the CEO be the primary ambassador is by nature centralized and undemocratic. And so that's why there is that tension. And yet in the early days, having the CEO be the cultural ambassador is the only choice. And so a transition is necessary at some point, assuming your company survives long enough. But let, so, so let's say if you started a business and you had an employee who really embodied your culture. So it's like dedicated. We had a guy yeah. called Jeff who like really embodied our culture. He wouldn't be a fit to like work on the next business I'm building. But assuming that he was or whatever, let's say he was our first hire. So there's this mm -hmm. guy who's like really embodies the culture, like maybe even more than me. Right. And you say like, it, 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 what you'd want ideally is if you did bring on someone like that to your new team, that person would be the cultural ambassador from day one. Um, and that's actually super empowering for them. That person's much more credible to their peers, employees than, mm -hmm. than you are as a CEO. Um, so, so ideally the CEO is not playing that role. And there's some cases where that could happen, but it's, realistically you're, you're doing it for the first uh well while you're at the family stage at least yeah while you're at the family stage you're probably halfway through the tribe stage at least okay so, so the second point anti-fragility yeah. yeah yes the second point is anti-fragility and you know i mentioned that the personal contact between the ceo and the employee is important so that there is a relationship so that not only is it that the employee might be less likely to leave, but so the employee feels more comfortable coming to the CEO and voicing concerns or flagging potential issues or what have you. And again, I think that this is one of the inherent things involved in leadership. And it's something that I realized early on in my career once I became a founder and a leader. And the fact is that human beings have an instinctive love of hierarchy and an instinctive set of behaviors that they jump into once a hierarchy is established. And one of those behaviors is that you don't necessarily talk with the highest level yourself and that you begin to defer to them, that you view them as more distant, right? This is why we have you know, the concept of gods that ancient people would worship because ultimately we want to have something distant from us, something bigger than us, something that we can put our faith in. And in the modern world where people we have less religious belief or religion is less relevant on a day-to-day -day basis, we have substituted instead great corporate leaders, entertainers, et cetera, et cetera. So, Interestingly, mm -hmm. Chris, our, the way we structure our podcast team is like that. Like you're kind of, uh, you know, this distant God that never, yes. you know, really interacts directly with the team. And anytime they interact with you, it's like they're like blessed by your, your awesomeness. Uh, and then like, I'm much more, you know, uh, you know, doing the hand-to-hand -hand combat um, and, and hands-on with them, I guess. Um, 
So, so that's, that's, I think, a really natural structure. Yeah, and that's a great example of how you can lean into this human tendency as opposed to trying to fight it and to say, well, well, we'll leverage this actual human tendency in some ways to be able to you know, conserve my time and to use me as a, a figure that you can deploy as needed in order to achieve the effects that you want. But it's also beneficial, right, mm -hmm. for the employees. Like if, if you have someone that's in that role, it's like there's something just beneficial to them to get like the blessing of this God figure. Um, it, it, it's strange, but it really works. Yeah, no, it's comforting. Although, again, I feel uh, a little uncomfortable describe, being described as a God figure. But on the other hand, I often joke that I am the apostle of blitzscaling and that somebody else is actually the Jesus. And I'm not sure how that makes Reed feel. So, you know, there you go. <laughs> Anyways, the anti-fragility. So, of course, there is this notion that the person is distant. But notice how the most popular religions today generally include a direct relationship between the individual and God or their deity. And that's because on the one hand, we want them to be distant. On the other hand, we want the sense that, you know, we can still just sit there and pray and maybe they're listening in and they're real busy, but you never know. And so I think that that's why building that relationship matters. It matters because people feel like that they could exercise that relationship. They may not exercise that relationship. Most cases they won't, but knowing that it's there comforts them in the same way that a religious believer feels comfort knowing that they have a direct channel to God, even though God may not listen, God may not act. That's a funny thing, right? The CEO may not listen. The CEO won't just do what you tell them to do, but knowing that you could go to them still provides comfort. Yeah, maybe slightly less obnoxious uh, comparison is, uh, you know, when I worked for this political party, this is why I like, it's so interesting. When I look at how I do things now, I really learn a lot, like emulate the good parts of how political parties are structured. And that's always how I would do stuff with this guy, Tom Mulcair, who you've met. So like, I would be super hands-on. And, uh, you know, I had my boss nominally was the head of the party uh, and uh, like the employee was ahead of the party. And then uh, you had the, um, you know, the leader of the party who was kind of like this God figure and uh, who would structure things so that people, as you say, had like they'd meet him sometimes and they'd interact with him. But, you know, we limit the amount of FaceTime. Um, and that was just very beneficial for everybody, both in terms of ROI on his time, but also is just better for the employees to have less, um, uh, less interaction with them for some reason. Yeah. So that I think covers the anti-fragility. What was the last question again? Let's repeat it yeah, because I may have forgotten and our listeners certainly might have. Yeah, it's, it will, we are kind of, it's a really good segue into it, which is the, um, the from the employee's perspective, mm -hmm. why it's beneficial for them to have some interaction with the uh, with the uh, the CEO. So, like, why is it that let's say at J.P. Morgan, where J.P. Morgan Chase, I don't know how many employees they have, like say a yeah. hundred thousand globally, like 
it's like even in that context, it makes sense for Jamie Dimon to do like 100 to one employee meetings yes. where they have some relationship to him. Like what's what's going on, not from the CEO's perspective, how we've been talking about here, but from the employee's perspective and their relationship to the CEO. Right. So there is a word that is used a lot these days. And that word is parasocial. I'm sure you've heard it come up many times. And people use it in the context of celebrity to say, for example, that they have a parasocial relationship with Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift has no idea who they are, but as a Swifty, they feel seen and heard. And they are invested in the actions of Taylor Swift, including presumably her flying to the Super Bowl this weekend to cheer on her boyfriend, Travis Kelsey of the Kansas City Chiefs. And this is always controversial because there's a significant chunk of people who absolutely hate this and they hate it for a variety of reasons. But one of the less misogynist or misogynistic or political reasons is simply that, hey, these are weird parasocial relationships and it's just not healthy. So in that context, it's a fraught term. And yet I'm going to deploy it. I'm going to deploy it and say that one of the things that you need to do as a CEO in a large organization is to leverage those parasocial relationships. So the employees of an organization are going to have a parasocial relationship with the leadership of their company, because if they identify themselves with the company, if they're proud to say, I'm an Apple employee, I'm a Google employee, then they're going to identify with the leader of that company, much like the fans of a sports team will identify with the key players of that sports team or the leaders of that sports team or the owner of that sports team, or much like the fans of Taylor Swift will identify with Taylor herself. And in order to reinforce that relationship, you then make sure that people actually have some chance to interact, even if it's not a one-on-one in-depth interaction. The entire business of Concerts is an interesting one, because if you think about it, clearly the audio quality is much superior if you stay at home and use your high fidelity sound system or even just your Apple AirPods to listen to an album. The the quality is better. The sound is better. The experience is better. You don't have to spend all this money, wait in line, smell all this marijuana smoke and so on and so forth. And yet people go to concerts. And why is that? It's because it is a parasocial relationship. You are going to be there to feel the magic of live, the sense of possibility that anything can happen, the sense that you're going to see something that is not accessible to the general public, the sense that you're sitting there and there's actually a whole relationship and energy exchange going on. As you know, I'm a public speaker and I go around and I speak in different audiences. And there's no question in my mind that my in-person impact is greater than my Zoom impact. In person, you can actually transmit this sort of nonverbal communication so much more effectively than you can through Zoom. And I feel the energy coming back from the audience. It excites me. Again, it's not actual energy. That's all a figurative sense. It's, you know, me reading cues, feeling like I'm being listened to, which produces endorphins internally. But nonetheless, the effective thing is there is a certain level of excitement that can only occur face-to-face, one-to-one, or even one-to-many. 
And so that parasocial relationship is why you as a leader need to go out there and press the flesh and why as an employee, it means so much when you can see this founder or CEO, because that is a story that someone can tell. Uh, I was speaking with somebody the other day, somebody who has met, you know, hundreds of really important people. And he shared with me how he had once met Reed at this event. And he met Reed at this event because they were both wearing these very bright yellow shirts. And Reed actually came up to him. And the guy said, Reed said, hey, I noticed you're wearing the same color shirt as I am. What's up with that? And the guy was talking to said, oh, you know, I was running out of laundry. This is what I had in the closet. And Reed's like, huh, that's one of my favorite colors. Anyways, that was years ago. He still remembers it. That's the power of the yeah. parasocial relationship. I got to say, because we, you know, do this podcast and it's branded blood scaling, I often meet people who, you know, have, well, I meet people and like in the context of the podcast who have like a dubious connection to read. Um, like maybe they met him once or whatever. <laughs> and like they always, as you say, feel like they always bring it up and they always like feel they have this really intense um you know, bond with him, even though they met him once for like five minutes. Um, By the maybe, way, this is know, one, one of the many contexts. This is one of the reasons Reed has gone into podcasting with such a vengeance. It's because one of the things that we discovered once Master of Scale started getting out there is that podcasting is one of the strongest ways to build this parasocial relationship. Yeah. And I suspect it's because it's long form. You get a much better sense of a person's personality and also because it's relatively intimate to hear a person's voice in your ear. And so it tends to build a really strong parasocial relationship. And Reed mentioned, it's like, wow, you know, now I'll be going somewhere and somebody say, oh my God, I love the podcast. And they feel like they know me, even though of course I have no idea who they are, but that's the parasocial relationship and it's power at work. Yeah, well, I, I, I've met a lot of people who listen to the podcast. Like, they just reach out to me on LinkedIn. I always answer nice. people. Um, and you do, like, for a lot of them, like, the, that, that is how they see it. Like, they feel like they have a relationship with me. I have no idea who they are. Um, yeah, but at the same time, you know, it's not entirely an illusion. Because if someone has spent all this time listening to you, they understand some of your, they know some of your stories, they understand what you're all about. It actually is an indication that they are more likely to be a useful person to talk with for you because yeah. you've already filtered it down. The people who listen to you and said, I hate that guy, or that's not for me, they're not going to reach out to you. And that's great because it just saved you a huge pile of time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really powerful thing. So, okay. Uh, I feel like I think a summary of this point is there are a lot of psychological things at play or dynamics at play uh, as a leader of a business, which the CEO is. And it's those psychological dynamics that enable you to accomplish what on its face seems impossible, just to steer a, a large group of people in a direction. And the, like, of course it's, you know, possible to, you know, abuse that type of stuff, but, but generally you do want to at least use those psychological uh, tools that you have in a way that's beneficial for everybody. Otherwise, 
you actually can't run a business. Like it's not possible to run, to, to manage, like, like to direct hundreds and thousands of people if you're, um, if you're not benefiting from those psychological dynamics. Yes. And I think that a way of illustrating this is to look a little bit at history and to say that technology has changed our ability to do this and that technology has made this a golden era for leadership in many ways. So if we look back in time, let's take a great figure from history, Abraham Lincoln, one of the greatest leaders that the United States has ever seen, and by extension, probably one of the greatest leaders the world has ever seen. And Abraham Lincoln accomplished amazing things. Now, he lived in an age where there wasn't television. There wasn't even radio. There wasn't even amplification of voice. So when he gave the Gettysburg Address, there's a whole bunch of people standing around, and the ones who are farther away have no idea what's going on. But what Lincoln did was leverage the tool that he did have, which was what then appeared in the newspapers. So the newspapers were the key factor. And those newspapers would go out and they'd carry his speeches. And people would, the fact is he, the fact is he could have written editorials, but there's something more powerful about the fact that this group of people was moved by a speech because they happened to be there. But then the newspaper would amplify the impact of that speech and ultimately to reach an entire nation. And you can see that in the fact that Americans still recognize the Gettysburg Address, the second inaugural address, uh, all these different speeches that he gave over time. And so if you think of yourself as a leader, you can say, well, you know what? I have it a lot easier than Abraham Lincoln. I can record a podcast. I can record a video. I can fly around the world and meet people face to face. It's amazing the tools I have to create this relationship and I should fully leverage it. Yeah, I think there's something powerful about combining the two where it's like, if you've met the person once, then you have, you, so there's this like psychological bond that's formed yeah. and then you kind of feel more of a connection to them. And when you follow their con like content or news related to them, you care a lot more and yeah. that enables them to like influence, influence you a lot more. Like I, I found that with a Ruger um, who we interviewed. I didn't even interview him. I just like met him for five minutes before, uh, uh, you know, you showed up and um, I, I've stayed in touch with him since, but like, I don't really know him. I only met him once. And, you know, I, now I know everything about him. Like, I know he left his record label and I listened to the song for, earlier today from his, uh, that he just put out and he's like trashing Deep Prince. It's a guy from his record label. I know oh, all my. these like really micro details about him because I feel I have this personal connection yeah. from having met him once uh, and, and barely. And there's no coincidence that I travel all over the world. That was how we began this podcast. We were talking a little bit about all the different kinds of traveling and gallivanting that I do. And it's not because I love travel. In fact, I do not like travel one bit. I would rather be home. I much prefer being home. But I do it because I know that building those social relationships is powerful and that it is so much more powerful when I do it. My... Popularity in Korea, for example, is so much higher after my having gone to Korea, uh, having spoken for audiences and having recorded content for Korean channels of distribution. 
and in um, Bangkok, you were here. And in, as a and in Bangkok as well, and, and various other places, Saudi Arabia. Again, there is just so much impact. People, so for the vast majority of folks who get reached by this, so there's a video on YouTube that I recorded for an organization called EO, in not Entrepreneurs Organization, it's a Korean media company that has been viewed, I think something like 300,000, 400,000 times. And all those people, you know, it doesn't make a difference to them because they weren't there physically for the two conferences I spoke at. They haven't seen me physically. But the fact that I actually spent this time in Korea builds the relationship. And I will close with one final thought, which is actually taken from parenting. So you are not a parent yet. And I've been a parent for a long time. And one of the things I say about parenting is that children are very smart. They're hard to fool. And you can say all you want about how much you love them. You can buy them all the things that they ask for. But they will know how important they are to you based on whether or not you actually spend time with them. And no amount of rhetoric saying you love them and the most important thing to them, no amount of money that you spend on stuff for them will cause them to believe that you really love them if you don't spend time with them. And the same thing holds true with employees and all the people in your organization. You can say people are the most important asset, but unless you're actually making some sacrifices, unless you're actually going and touching them, you know, in an appropriate way, of course, and going there and, and getting a chance for them to interact with you, it's lip service. It's like saying, I love my children so much, right? Okay, prove it. And the only way to prove it is to provide some time. There are ways around it, as we said, podcasts and videos, those all help. But at the end of the day, those also demonstrate that you're putting effort in. There's no way to avoid effort. The best thing you can do is to increase the leverage of those efforts. I had this idea and we have five minutes, but uh, so maybe you don't really have time to react to it. But the, the idea, because this is about hiring, right? Now, is a really useful technique you could use to be able to recruit younger people is to visit this, the kind target schools personally. So let's say you oh, want yes. to recruit from Yale, Harvard, whatever. Absolutely. If you just visited those schools and gave a talk, you know, once every couple of years, um, you would then be able to recruit from those schools, even without being involved personally, uh, you know, much more efficiently than if you had never visited those schools. You create this bond through the kind of, you know, connection to the, the location or something like that. Absolutely. And the ideal would be to go every two to three years so that there was never a, never a group of students on campus that had not seen you. So that people yeah. say, oh, wow, you know, Julian's coming back to clamp. Let me tell you about what happened last time. And that way you build on it. But even if not, you know, just doing just having visited once makes a huge difference. The fact that I visited a country like the fact that I went to India in 2020 still pays dividends because people can say, oh, he came to visit. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, so interesting. All right, Chris, great talking as always. So much insight. And um, we'll, we'll speak next week. My pleasure. And I will be speaking to you post Super Bowl, post trip to uh, post trip to Napa Valley or to the North Bay Marin County, but pre my trip to Dubai. So we'll continue the gallivanting 
And now that we've had this conversation, we know the reasons for the gallivanting. And uh, most important, thank you to everyone who spent uh, you know this hour with us. Uh, obviously, you have lots of other uh, ways that you could spend your time. Uh, for me personally, I can't imagine uh, any better use of time than uh, listening to Chris, but um, uh, we appreciate that, that you do that as well. Thank you, everyone. And again, that is a personal thanks from me. Mm-hmm. <laughs>